Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken, a podcast about Jesus, His Word, and our joy in following Him. I'm Michelle Leslie. And I'm Amy Spreeman. And tonight we are going to be talking about an issue that Christians really wrestle with year-round, but sometimes even more so during the holiday season, and that is Christian liberty. Now, can I, as a Christian parent, let my kids dress up and trick-or-treat on Halloween? Is it okay to have a glass of wine with Thanksgiving dinner? Am I sinning by celebrating Christmas or putting up a Christmas tree? Should I attend a New Year's Eve party where others will be drinking? Okay, those are questions we all have, and we want to look to the Bible for answers to these questions, but we can't always find a definitive yes or no to these specific questions in Scripture, and that's where Christian liberty comes in. That's right, Amy. You know, on on many issues, the Bible is crystal clear with no room for debate. For example, God created everything. Murder is sin. Women aren't to preach or pastor. There's no other way of salvation except through Jesus. Those things aren't left up to our own interpretation, even a little bit. Those are thus saith the Lord kind of things. On other issues, the Bible gives us room for differing interpretations, such as, you know, the issue of eschatology, which is the order of events of the second coming. There are several different biblically supported views of how that's all going to play out. And then still on other issues, the Bible is virtually silent, and we have to use godly wisdom and draw from biblical principles to inform our consciences and prayerfully make the most God-honoring decisions we can. And these would be issues like the holiday dilemmas Amy just mentioned, and also non-holiday issues like, oh, how casually or formally should I dress for church? Or should I patronize a company that, that donates to Planned Parenthood? These are issues of Christian liberty, or adiaphora, issues of personal conscience and personal decision that are not intrinsically sinful and don't conflict with clear biblical instruction, doctrine, or principles. Yeah, Michelle, I want to draw everyone's attention to uh, that word you just used, personal. And our listeners might have noticed that as we've been talking about these specific questions of Christian liberty, uh, we've been very purposeful to say, should I do this? Or is it okay for me to do that? You know, issues of doctrine, like uh, the doctrine of salvation, and issues of sin, like murder, apply to everyone. You know, Christian liberty issues are issues of personal choice. You don't get to decide for yourself whether or not Jesus is the only way of salvation, or whether or not murder is a sin, like you get to decide for yourself whether or not to hand out candy on Halloween or put up a Christmas tree. And it works the same way in reverse. Because issues of liberty are issues God leaves up to our individual personal consciences, we don't get to impose the rules that we make for ourselves on other people. We can biblically tell others, you must be born again, or it's a sin for you to murder, because God said so. We can't biblically tell others, although many people do, uh, that it's a sin for you to hand out candy on Halloween or question someone's salvation for putting up a Christmas tree because those are our rules and not God's rules. 
Exactly. God's rules apply to everybody. My rules apply to me. And you know, if you think about it, this is exactly what Jesus was trying to teach the Pharisees and what he fussed at them so much for. They were going beyond scripture, making rules that were more restrictive than scripture and imposing those man-made rules on others. If you don't keep these rules that we've made, they said, you're sinning. And as we've discussed in previous episodes, the Pharisees did not start off as bad guys. In Jesus' day, not all, even then, they were not all bad guys. When they started out, they weren't trying to be killjoys or intentionally trying to place people under a heavy yoke of bondage. They had just come out of the 70 years of exile that we read about in the Old Testament, and they never wanted to sin and come under God's judgment like that ever again. They had excellent intentions of trying to keep themselves and God's people away from sin. But they went about it the wrong way. Probably without even meaning to, they tried to improve on God's law. But you can't do that because as Psalm 19.7 tells us, the law of the Lord is perfect. It can't be improved. And it's not just that it can't be improved upon. There's no practical need for it to be improved upon because scripture is sufficient We don't need anything man-made outside of scripture to govern our behavior or tell us what God wants from us. God gave us all of that perfectly in the Holy Spirit-breathed pages of his written word. Amen. But you know, Michelle, sadly, I think this Pharisee phenomenon is exactly uh, what some Christians probably unintentionally have fallen into today. Let's take that Halloween example that you mentioned. The Bible is very clear that we're not supposed to participate in, celebrate, encourage, or endorse evil. We're not going to glorify death and gore and sensuality and all the things that uh, God stands against. You know, like Ephesians 5.11 says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So those are the general principles and commands that God gives us. But some Christians will come along and take those general principles God gave us and make a very specific man-made rule. They'll say something like, These general biblical principles against evil mean that if you open your door to trick-or-treaters, even if you give them a gospel tract along with the candy you're passing out, you're sinning, and you probably aren't saved. So it reminds me of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. You know, God said that in the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The Pharisees said... That general biblical principle means you can't walk more than 2,000 cubits on the Sabbath. If you do, you're sinning and you should be cut off from your people. Right. You know, Amy, some of our listeners probably think you're exaggerating, but I can attest to the fact that you're not. I mean, every year, and I'm sure you you get these too, but every year, especially at Halloween and Christmas, I get those comments and those emails almost verbatim from the modern day holiday Pharisees, I call them. And I call them that not to be mean or provocative, but for two reasons. One, making your own rules that are more restrictive than scripture and telling people they have to obey your rules or they're sinning and probably not even saved is the textbook definition, our textbook being the Bible, of course, it's the textbook definition of the word Pharisee. 
So that's number one. And number two, I'm hoping that if any of our listeners have fallen into that unbiblical way of thinking and talking and behaving, that realizing that they're Pharisees will give them the wake up call they need to repent and believe and behave biblically instead. Christian liberty is God's grace to you as an individual, as he uniquely sanctifies you and conforms you to his image. It is not a tool he gives you to conform others to your image. That's right, Michelle. The Bible tells us in Philippians 2.12 to work out our own salvation, not other people's salvation. I have to follow my biblically informed conscience on issues of Christian liberty, and you have to follow your conscience. And I'm going to answer to God for my decisions, and you will answer to God for your decisions. And kind of a funny little story. Uh, years ago, probably in the early 2000s, for some reason, uh, bacon was a thing. I, I love bacon. And so uh, people would send me memes. They still do, you know, share things on my Facebook wall about bacon and kind of funny little cartoons and things like that. And uh, I had posted some bacon that I made a little picture up there. And somebody on my Facebook, um, you know, post commented and said, Amy, you're perishing because of the bacon. You you are not to eat that. And uh, of course, they're, they're, they're referring to, you know, don't eat pork in the Old Testament. Um, and, and this person had gotten into something called the Hebrew Roots Movement, which uh, we could post some definitions in the in the show notes. But uh, yeah, yeah, I was apparently not saved because because of my love for bacon, even though Jesus uh, said that all foods are clean. Um, anyway, uh, right. I digress though. So, you know, we've talked about the definition of Christian liberty, uh, issues of personal conscience and personal decision uh, that are not intrinsically sinful, like bacon, and they don't conflict with clear biblical instruction, uh, doctrine, or even principles. Now, how do we figure out how to handle issues of Christian liberty? How do we make the right decision if the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us what to do? Well, it might actually be easier than you think. In fact, without even realizing it, you probably make a hundred different decisions a day that qualify as issues of Christian liberty. For example, Michelle, what did you have for lunch today, if you can remember? <laughs> I was just thinking about that because I knew you're going to ask me that. Uh, I had chicken and potatoes for lunch today. Chicken and potatoes, delicious. Now, did you have chicken and potatoes for lunch today because the Bible told you to have chicken and potatoes for lunch today? No, I did not. Uh, and why is that? Because the Bible doesn't work like that. Amy, you should know oh. that. The Bible doesn't work like that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the Bible doesn't work like that. God gives us his general laws and principles. And as part of our sanctification, our daily walk with the Lord, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we figure out how to rightly apply those general principles to the specific situations in our lives. The Bible teaches us generally how to eat to the glory of God. It doesn't tell us specifically what to eat for lunch. Exactly. And like I said, we probably all make a hundred of decisions or so per day, just like that. You know, what to have for lunch, red socks or blue socks, uh, what time to go to bed, Coke or Pepsi. I hope you say Coke. Uh, which job <laughs> offer to take or what kind of car to buy. You know, if you think about it, probably uh, the majority of decisions that we make during the course of our lives are issues of Christian liberty. And we never really give them a second thought. Usually, this is kind of funny, the only times 
times we start wrestling with these issues of Christian liberty are, uh, first, when we're not sure what the Bible says about the morality of what we're doing, um, then uh, second, uh, when the issue is a hot topic in our church or in Christian circles, and thirdly, uh, when somebody else makes a different decision than we would make. Right. And those are some really important points, Amy. And they're, they're also really good reasons to think through the issue biblically. First of all, you know, you're not sure what the Bible says about the morality of what you're doing. Well, it's time to find out so you can make the wisest and most biblical decision possible. Um, when the issue is a hot topic in your church or in Christian circles, it's probably a good idea to learn about the issue, to learn what the Bible says about it, and to figure out what you think about it. Because whether you realize it or not, there are people looking up to you as a Christ-like example. Maybe it's your children, or maybe it's another lady at church that you're discipling, or maybe it's an unsaved co-worker who knows you're a Christian and wants to see if you're the real deal. And when someone makes a different decision than you would make, ask yourself why. Is her decision biblical and yours isn't? Or is your decision biblical and hers isn't? Or, as is often the case, are both of your decisions equally biblical but different? So we make all these mundane, daily, red socks or blue socks decisions without a thought, but then we run up against these stickier situations that we're not quite sure how to navigate. How do we handle those situations and make godly decisions? Well, we want to be proactive and preventative in our walk with the Lord. And Michelle, I think I've heard you say, don't wait for your house to catch on fire before you pick up a hose. Go out and spray your house down every day so it doesn't catch on fire. So, you know, if you live on the West Coast, for instance, it's fire season sometimes out there. And there are a few ways that we can, in a way, metaphorically, spray our houses down before those confusing issues of Christian liberty come calling. And if we do that, they probably won't be quite as confusing as they could be. So the first thing we should do to be a faithful member of a doctrinally sound local church, that's the very first thing that we want you to do. And remember, we just said that the first reason an issue of Christian liberty might throw you for a loop is because you're not sure what the Bible says about the morality of it. Being in a good, solid church where your pastors and teachers are correctly teaching you the word week in and week out uh, will help you with that. You'll not only be learning the specific thou shalts and those shalt nots, but you'll also be gleaning the biblical principles that aren't always so clearly spelled out. And the second thing we need you to do, uh, you know, this you know really goes hand in hand with sitting under uh, good teaching in your church. Study your Bible daily. Boy, you know, Michelle and I sound like broken records on this. Nobody ever grew into a strong Christian by feeding on the word only once a week at church. If you want to have an easier time figuring out those issues of Christian liberty, you need to really hunger and thirst for the word every day. And finally, you guessed it, pray. Develop a faithful daily prayer life. Pray every day that God will give you wisdom and that he will make you a good student of his word and that he will help you rightly apply his word in your life. You know, it may seem like church, Bible study, and prayer are our answers for everything, but they're really not. They're God's answers for everything. Regardless of the specific situations we face every day, those general principles are essential for handling them. 
But sometimes we're doing all of these things faithfully and a confusing situation still comes along that we need to know how to handle in a godly way. So let's take one of the specific dilemmas we mentioned earlier and work our way through it to give you an example. And I I think it was, uh, is it okay for me to have a glass of wine with my Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner? Or any dinner, really. You know, Christians have been debating the use of alcohol for a really long time. And we're going to go through this rather quickly just to explain how to do this. But when you're wrestling with a Christian liberty issue, you're going to want to take your time and really dig into scriptures and uh, spend some time in prayer about it. Right. So when it comes to an issue of Christian liberty, there are two questions you have to answer. First, can I do it? And second, should I do it? Both biblically speaking, of course. Now, if you ask the question, can I do it? And the Bible clearly says no, then what you have there is an issue of sin, not an issue of Christian liberty. And you don't have to do any studying or praying to answer the second question. The answer is always no, you should not do it. If you cannot do it, you should not do it. So let's ask that first question for our little scenario. Can I biblically have a glass of wine with dinner? Well, what does the Bible say? Amy, you've studied your Bible and you know it pretty well. Is there any verse in the Bible that clearly and directly says, thou shalt not drink alcohol or commands us to abstain from alcohol altogether or something like that? Well, I do remember some passages that command some people not to drink alcohol. For example, in uh, Judges 13, God tells Samson's mother that she is not to drink wine or strong drink because she's pregnant with Samson, and Samson is going to be a Nazarite. Now, this was one of the conditions for uh, Jews who were under a Nazarite vow that they could not drink any alcohol. But we have to understand that those passages are, and we've talked about this before, we call these descriptive passages rather than prescriptive passages. It's really good for you to understand the difference. Descriptive passages describe what happened to other people in Scripture, and prescriptive passages are commands or instructions that uh, God prescribes to everyone. So, unless you are Samson or Samson's mother or an Old Testament Jew under a Nazarite vow, those particular commands not to drink alcohol do not apply to you. But Michelle, I'm pretty sure you're asking about prescriptive passages, you know, not descriptive ones. And no, there really aren't any prescriptive passages that forbid Christians from drinking altogether. Yeah, that's a really important point, Amy. When we ask the Bible, are cannot I do it question. We have to be sure we're doing what 2 Timothy 2.15 says and rightly handle the word of truth. We can't take those passages about Samson's mother or, for example, the passage where it talks about uh, Jesus refusing the sour wine that he was offered during the crucifixion. We can't take those out of their context and improperly use them to say, see, this means nobody can ever drink alcohol. That's misusing and mishandling God's word. And it's really disobeying 2 Timothy 2.15, which tells us to handle God's word correctly. Okay, so we know that the Bible doesn't prohibit everyone from drinking, period. Does the Bible approve of drinking? Well, there's an extent to which the answer to this question is yes, and this is where being a good student of your whole Bible comes in. So throughout scripture, we see wine mentioned positively as a good thing. So here are just a few of the dozens and dozens of examples. 
Uh, When Isaac blessed his son Esau, he said, May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. That was Genesis 27, 28. In Leviticus 23, 13, and many other places in the Old Testament law, God commands that wine be brought for a drink offering. Jesus's first public miracle was turning water into wine. Jesus drank wine at the Last Supper and probably plenty of other times in his life, but we know for sure he drank wine at the Last Supper. Uh, Paul tells Timothy to use a little wine for his stomach problems. The Old and New Testament are both replete with references to God's people planting vineyards, harvesting grapes, making wine, owning wine presses, drinking wine, and so on. And God never calls any of this a sin. In fact, in some passages, he calls it a blessing. So since these passages of scripture show wine as a positive thing, does that mean Christians have to drink or that it's always a good thing for Christians to drink? Well, no, because again, these are all descriptive passages, not prescriptive. God doesn't command Christians to drink alcohol or say that it's always good for Christians to drink alcohol. Right. And I I have another little story about how Christians can mangle the alcohol topic. And, you know, this this happened, I I mean, I was just a a baby Christian, as they say, Uh, one of my first Berean discerning moments ever. And it happened while uh, my husband and I were sitting in a uh, Southern Baptist church when we lived in Florida. As uh, again, I think maybe we had been, you know, Christians for maybe a year didn't really, you know, just starting to learn what the Bible said. So the pastor uh, giving a sermon was reading about Jesus's miracle at Cana and, and stated that, you know, scholars now say that Jesus did not turn water into an alcoholic wine, but a non-alcoholic beverage. Now, he didn't say who these scholars were, but he just said this during his sermon. And he concluded by saying, our Lord would never use fermented wine. So, you know, and thankfully we all had our Bibles open on our laps because he had asked us, you know, bring your Bibles. And so I could read the story in context and I started, you know, my eyes got really big and I kind of looked sideways at my husband, gave him a little elbow. (laughs) But what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the very first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And here, so I'm just going to read this passage. This is what was open on my lap that day. Uh, in John chapter two, it says, on the third day, a wedding took a place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus's mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus's mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Well, the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. 
And that's the that's what the Bible says in John chapter 2. And this miracle was so important. Truth does matter. Uh, words mean things. And Jesus changed the molecules of the water into fermented wine. It's very clear here. And he did not promote alcoholism or drunkenness, which his word explains uh, can be a sin. The sin isn't the wine itself, but the drunkenness. That's the point. When, uh, you know, just like when um, Jesus multiplied the loaves of fish, he wasn't promoting gluttony, which is a sin. Uh, And I didn't know I was too new in that moment. But later on, as I studied this chapter again, I learned that the Greek word for wine is oinos, uh, you know, which is actually wine that is fermented or alcoholic, oinos. The Greek word for the wine Jesus created is the same word for the wine at the wedding feast that it ran out of. And the Greek word for the wine Jesus created is also the same word used in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, which says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So that word, oinos, means actually don't get drunk on fermented wine. But that morning sitting in church, I knew just enough to realize that something was wrong, and it wasn't God's word. So yes, I I did um, jab my elbow into my husband that day. So again, to clarify that when we say drinking alcohol, we're not talking about getting drunk. The Bible does prohibit drunkenness. Here are just a a few more examples. Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. And then in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is a drunkard and that we are to exercise church discipline against such people. So, Michelle, the Bible does prohibit drunkenness, but it does not prohibit drinking a small amount of alcohol, which does not make you drunk. That's exactly right. And, you know, anyone who has ever had a drink of alcohol knows this. There's a real and quantifiable difference between an amount of alcohol that does not make a person drunk and an amount of alcohol that does make a person drunk. And Amy, I just want to piggyback on what you were talking about a second ago with with your pastor there. You know, I'm Southern Baptist and I have grown up Southern Baptist all my life. And so I have heard some pastors really try to rescue God from himself all my life. with with the alcohol issue and say that this was just grape juice. It was not fermented wine. Or they will argue over the amount of fermentation, you know, and they'll say things like, well, the wine that they had back then was only an eighth or a tenth as strong as it is now or whatever. And then they start talking about uh, there's... Uh, the Bible differentiates between wine and strong drink, you'll notice in some passages. And, you know, that's all fine. And it's interesting to research those things. And if you want to do that, go ahead. But let me just tell you this, this idea that, that none of the alcohol or none of the wine in the Bible was fermented is not true. Okay. Because, and we know that because the Bible says, do not be drunk with much wine. And if that word for wine there is really grape juice, I'm sorry, I I don't care how much grape juice you drink, you're not going to get drunk off of grape juice because there's no alcohol in it. So you we might know have a sugar that there high, is, but yeah. that's right, exactly. <laughs> you might be bouncing off the walls, but you won't be drunk. Um, so we know that there was some degree of fermentation, and you can debate that till the cows come home as to how much there was in there. But there was some degree of fermentation in the wine that the Bible discusses. So, you know, 
if you if you hear somebody telling you that it wasn't fermented, uh, it's probably one of my Southern Baptist brethren, and I'm sure he means very well. But you know, when people do that, they're really, like I said, they're trying to to rescue God from himself. And it's when you do that, it's sort of an implication that God is doing something wrong and needs to be rescued, you know, yeah. or that um, you, you're trying to be holier than the Bible or trying to be holier than God. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Again, going back to that, they were making all these rules that were stricter than God's rules. Um in order to keep the people from sinning. But in a, in a way that was saying that God's law didn't go far enough. And so we need to be really, really careful about that because when we are legalistic, that's what we're saying. We're saying that God's law doesn't go far enough and we have to step in and make a man-made law that does a better job than God's law does. And that's really a lot of what uh, the legalistic side of this issue of Christian liberty boils down to. So um, so we don't want to get too, too far afield here. We want to go back to our, our, um, our example here. Uh, so what do we know so far? We know that the Bible doesn't prohibit drinking alcohol, period. Uh, it doesn't command drinking alcohol, and it prohibits drunkenness. So the answer to our can I do it question is yes, in moderation. Now, I know that sounds scary to some of y'all, but really, it's okay. Don't be scared of that. It's okay for the Bible to say that. Um, But as we all know, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it. So our next question is, should I do it? And that's where you have to take a lot of things into consideration that might be unique to your life and your circumstances. For example, does this bother my conscience? Where does my church stand on this issue? What does my immediate community or culture say about this? Is it good for my health? How will this impact my witness to others? Will I be causing a brother or sister to stumble? Is this the best use of my money? Because alcohol is expensive. Um, I've heard. <laughs> so do I, uh, do I have the self-awareness and the self-discipline to stop drinking before I get drunk? These are all questions that, that we need to consider and ask ourselves. Uh, Now, at at this point, there are brothers and sisters who would throw up their hands, overwhelmed at having to biblically sort through all of these questions and say, see, drinking just causes so many problems. What's the point of doing it at all? And that, you know, that is an absolutely fine and biblical position to take for yourself. But what you cannot say is, see, drinking causes so many problems, no Christian should be doing it at all. Right. And like we said earlier, the Bible says to work out your own salvation, not everyone else's. You will answer to God for your decisions and everyone else will answer to God for theirs. So you can certainly decide that it's easier and less complicated to avoid all of the questions that come with drinking alcohol and simply decide not to drink at all. Or you can prayerfully study scripture and think through all those issues and others related to drinking that uh, Michelle just mentioned and um, come to a conclusion that way. You know, you could just do it like that. Um, So if you do decide to prayerfully study the issue, be sure that you're convinced in your heart that the conclusion you've reached doesn't conflict with scripture and that you're okay to act on it. 
In other words, go back to our drinking example for just a second. You may know in your mind that the Bible doesn't prohibit you from having a glass of wine, and you may have thought through all of the potential problems, and you know it's you know not going to hurt your witness or cause someone else to stumble and all those things. But even though you know all of that intellectually, it is possible for your heart to still feel uncomfortable with the idea of drinking. And if that's the case, you shouldn't drink because that's sinning against your own conscience. Romans 14 is a really good chapter to study about Christian liberty, and it addresses this issue of conscience. Uh, For the Romans, the Christian liberty issue of the day was eating certain foods. Verse 23 tells us, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So in our example, you could easily substitute drink for eat. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he drinks, because the drinking is not from faith. So if you're doubting whether or not you should drink, that doubt is because on some level in your heart, you're not completely convinced you drinking isn't a sin. And if you go ahead and drink, even though the outward action itself might not be a sin, inwardly the intent of your heart was to do something you believe to be a sin, if that makes sense. Right. And Amy, is it okay if I give another example? I mean, I know this concept can be really confusing when Christians first start thinking about it. To understand about sinning against your conscience, think about the criminal justice concept of intent. For example, on Dateline or one of those news shows several years ago, they did this series of sting operations in which they were trying to catch men taking advantage of underage girls. And what they would do is the man would call what he thought was a teenage girl and find out that she was home alone. And then he would come over to her house with the intention of having sex with her. And the police would step in and nab him when he got there. Now, the person he talked to on the phone and met at the house was not, in fact, a teenager. Teenager. It was a policewoman who looked young enough to be a teenager. So when the man got to the house, he did not, in fact, have sex with a teenager. So the outward actions the man performed, making a phone call, setting up the date, going over to the house, none of those actions were in and of themselves illegal because the woman he was talking to was not actually underage. But he didn't know that. His intent was to do something he either knew or thought might be illegal. He had already, in his heart, intended to and decided to commit the crime. And so that's kind of like what it's, what it's like to do something like drinking when your heart suspects it might be a sin. Ask yourself, would I feel spiritually uncomfortable or would I feel like I was sinning the whole time if I did this? And if the answer is yes, then don't do it. Your decision wouldn't be proceeding from faith like the the Romans 14 passage that we just read. And for you, that would be sin because you'd be sinning against your conscience because in your heart, you'd believe that what you're doing is a sin against God, but you're doing it anyway. And that that really makes a lot of sense, Michelle. Like we said, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. As uh, Martin Luther once said, my conscience is held captive by the word of God, and to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. 
So we should never do something that we are spiritually uneasy about, even if scripture gives us the liberty to do it. When in doubt, don't. And finally, some may wonder, how is it that two Christians who are genuinely born again, indwelt by the exact same Holy Spirit, reading the exact same Bible, can come to different conclusions on an issue of Christian liberty? Isn't that the Holy Spirit contradicting himself? Well, that's a great question, and no, and it's not complicated at all. We know that the Holy Spirit never contradicts himself because he's God. The difference in the two conclusions of those two Christians uh, is not in the Holy Spirit, but in the two Christians themselves. They are each unique creations of God who think differently, and they have different backgrounds and different life circumstances and different perspectives. They are also at different levels of Christian maturity and sanctification and understanding of Scripture, and God in his love has given each of them a solution to their issue of Christian liberty that is not only biblical, but it's also uniquely suited to each of them right where they are in their walk with him. Mm, That's right. Isn't God just so good and so kind to love us personally like that? Wow. I mean, he created us as unique individuals and he treats us as unique individuals. Oh, he is so good. Well, you know what? We need to wrap it up. That's going to do it uh, for another episode of A Word Fitly Spoken. But before we go, we want to say a special thank you to Jenny for her gracious PayPal donation and her sweet note that went along with it. Jenny says, I stumbled across your podcast, and it's been such a blessing showing me the errors in my own lack of discernment. I've learned so much from listening and can finally see that I should thank God for my husband's leadership. A big thank you from this homeschool mom of five. Well, that is so cool. And thank you, Jenny, for that note and for your generosity. We really appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much, Jenny. It is so kind of you to encourage and help us. And if you'd like to help defray our podcasting costs like Jenny did via PayPal or Patreon, just go to our website, awordfitlyspoken.life, and click on the support tab. And while you're there, how about clicking on our speaking tab? Amy and I would love to come speak at your next women's event. Plus, check out the show notes for this episode and all our other resources. And until next time, humbly, biblically, and rightly exercise your Christian liberty and walk worthy.